When we look at the world around us, it's easy to see that many people are angry. Now, despite the the large number of angry people running around, most simply do not see anger as an issue, not a problem. Many have the idea that about their anger that a lady who talked with the great evangelist Billy Sunday had. She said, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up and then it's all over. Billy Sunday replied, so does a shotgun. And look at the damage it leaves behind. Now what that lady does could be called blowing and going. You blow up and then you go on. The problem is that those that you blow up on usually don't go on as quickly as you do. Today we are going to learn what Jesus has to say about anger. And as with everything else we've looked at and we'll look at in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says and what culture says are not the same thing. So open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. It's page 736 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 21, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The title of the message this morning is, Be Angry and Sin Not. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today, Lord, with a desire to learn how to be like Jesus. Father, we want to walk in the way of Jesus. We want to do the will of Jesus. We want to be disciples of Jesus. So as we come to what Jesus has said about anger, give us a surrendered spirit, give us a tender heart, and give us ears to hear. Father, our our culture is an angry culture. And many of us in here To be perfectly honest, we are angry people. And yet you have better for us than that. Jesus has called us to higher than that. Today, Father, let your spirit take this word and implant it deep, deep into our hearts that it would bear forth fruit that we would not be angry, prideful people. 
Help us, Father, that we would be men and women of peace who not only have peace in our lives, but make peace with others. Help us, Father, that we would not try to make excuses this morning as to why our anger is okay. Help us to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and embrace His Word as our rule and live according to the righteousness He has given us. Fill me with Your Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me not to be able to say, not to say anything that You don't want me to say, Father. Have Your way in every aspect of this service we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The key verse for Matthew 5, the last part of it, is verse 20. But I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is both received and it's lived. It is received through faith in Jesus, but then having received righteousness from Jesus, disciples begin to live righteously through Jesus. And one of the way this righteousness is seen is in how we deal with anger. So how do we do that? Well, there's three, three points in this message. First, realize the unrighteousness of anger. Realize the unrighteousness of anger. Now, all throughout Matthew 5, after verse 20, Jesus begins to lead in saying, You have heard it was said, but I say unto you. And what he's sort of saying is, when he says you, you have heard it was said, what he's sort of saying is, according to popular opinion. And then when he says, but, but I say unto you, he's saying contrary to popular opinion. Opinion, And this interaction is going on in, in our, the first part of our passage today. The scribes and the Pharisees taught that committing the act of murder, it made you subject to judgment. Now, when I think of the word judgment, I think of the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 21. But that's not what the original hearers would have thought of. They would have understood Jesus talking about the court system. And that's because of what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. They basically taught that the only that only the outward act of murder was wrong. And if you killed someone, you would face the local court. And that was really the only judgment you would face. Now, they neglected the the intent, the spirit behind the command, you shall not kill. And they neglected the idea that God is the ultimate judge and the one who passes judgment on all people. So Jesus is counteracting their teaching. He said, according to popular opinion, murder is all that's forbidden. But contrary to popular opinion, not killing someone is not enough. Contrary to popular opinion, just not killing someone is not a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Contrary to popular opinion, not only is killing someone sinful, but anger is as well. Now, isn't it amazing 
how Jesus still speaks to us today. We live in an angry culture. We live in an angry world. Think about the ways that anger is on display in our world every day. Political discourse. Is there any political discourse that is civil and not filled with anger and hatred? Social media. As much as I like social media, it is filled with angry people saying angry words to try to anger other people. General violence. I mean, every day the news reports some sort of anger incited violence against someone. Sporting events. I mean, good grief, you can't even go to a sporting event without people getting into either having a cussing fit or a fist fight about what's going on. And then Black Friday, I saw a video where there was a fist fight over like a toaster at a Walmart somewhere. Anger is everywhere. And the world at large tells us that's okay. This anger is acceptable. This anger is reasonable. But Jesus says, contrary to popular opinion, none of that is acceptable. None of that is reasonable for my disciples. The righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the the righteousness that Jesus' disciples receive and lives, it calls for a much higher standard in dealing with anger. And it begins by realizing the unrighteousness of anger. Now, some are saying, but wait. Jesus says, angry without a cause. Right? And so there are times when anger is appropriate. Jesus is only condemning anger without a cause. True. There are times when anger is the appropriate response And in those times, it is not unrighteous. But what are those times? Well, that's a hard question to answer for a couple of reasons. One is, on a personal level, we all want to think our anger is righteous and justified. I know that I do. If I get angry over anything, I can promise you, I'm convinced my anger is a righteous indignation at whatever it is. The reality is it's not. Neither is yours. Second, Scripture really doesn't give us a definitive answer. I mean, Scripture doesn't really say, this is a way to be angry righteously, and this is a time to be angry righteously. And all other times, it's not. So how do we know? Well, I think the best way to do it is to look at Scripture and see What makes Jesus angry? I thought of two specific examples. Mark 3, verses 1 through 5. Jesus goes into a synagogue. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders have placed a man with a withered hand in there so that when Jesus walks in, he sees him. And they're waiting to see, will Jesus heal this man? On the Sabbath day. Because the Bible says they're looking for a reason to accuse him. 
So Jesus asked, is it is it a righteous thing to do good for someone on the Sabbath? And they don't answer. And the Bible says that he begins to be angry at the hardness of their hearts. He was angry at the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders that led them to use the suffering of a man with a withered hand to further their religious or their political agenda. Another instance of Jesus being angry is John chapter 12, verses 14 through 22, when Jesus clears the temple. That's the one that we most think about with Jesus being angry. He makes a whip with cords and he begins to turn over tables and cause people to leave and tells them not to make his father's house a, a house of merchandise. And what's happened is they have set up shop in the church, in the synagogue or in the temple. And, and what they're doing is when people come in, they, they have to offer a sacrifice. And what they've done is they've got animals set up so that you can get these pre-perfect sacrifices. And all you have to do, you don't have to bring your own. You just come in and you buy ours. And when you buy ours, we promise you it's good to go and you can take it and offer it. They also had a money changers table so that, so that you could come in and exchange the, the pagan currency for the currency of Israel so they could offer it to pay the taxes that they were supposed to pay. But they set it up in the temple in the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place a Gentile was allowed to come and worship God. So they were using the temple, one, for their own financial gain, and they were doing it in such a way that it excluded some people from being able to worship God. So, we could say that anger when someone uses the suffering of another to further a personal or political agenda, that is a righteous anger. We could say anger when people are so hard-hearted they don't care about the suffering of other human beings, that is a righteous anger. Anger when people use the church for personal gain or personal promotion, that would be a righteous anger. Anger when religious people set things up in such a way that some are kept from being able to worship God, that would be a righteous anger. If we looked at other places in Scripture, we would find that anger at the abuse and exploitation of the innocent, that would be a righteous anger. Anger when the people of God have compromised to the point that they have the same values, priorities, attitudes, morals, actions, and reactions as those who don't know Jesus. That would be a righteous anger. And there are more examples that we could use, but time would not permit. But the big question is, are the things that make me angry similar to the things that make Jesus angry? And if they're not, then be sure, it is not a righteous anger. Expositor A.W. Pink said this in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. There is a holy anger, as appears from the example of Christ and the apostolic precept, be angry and sin not. It may be asked, how are we to distinguish godly anger from that which is unlawful? The former proceeds from love or righteousness and has in view good the good of him 
against whom it is exercised, and looks to the glory of God, whereas unholy anger issues from pride and desires injury to the one against whom it is directed. Anger is lawful only when it burns against sin, and this is the equivalent to zeal for the divine honor. Disciples of Jesus realize the unrighteousness of their anger. And so they refuse to accept the world standard as acceptable or reasonable. Oh, sorry. Get carried away. Realize the unrighteousness of anger. Recognize the sins of anger. As Jesus explains that not killing people isn't the standard of righteousness for his disciples, he explains three specific sins associated with anger. But I say unto you, whoever is angry without his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Three specific sins from verses 21 to 22. Number one, uncontrolled anger. Is a sin. Right? Because remember, killing people, it's still a sin. It's just not the last, the all that there is with anger. Now, the anger that talks about here, the the anger that leads to murder, it is kind of a a seething, brooding anger that threatens to, to leap out of control. It leads to violence, emotional hurt, increased mental distress, spiritual damage, and even murder. But murder does not have to be the end result for there to be sinful, uncontrolled anger. All there has to be is anger that is not controlled. Now remember, Paul said, be angry and what? Sin not. Sometimes we can't necessarily control our anger because sometimes anger just flashes and happens. But we control our actions. So when those times when our anger flashes and we act or we speak, That anger is uncontrolled and it's sinful. Paul warns against it this way. But all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, pretty much all of those have to do with anger in one way or another. And we're to put away anger in all of its various forms. Now, there are signs That anger is out of control. When our anger is out of control, it makes us bitter. Right? Bitterness, he says. We're going to talk in a minute about reconciliation. But do you know what a bitter person will do? Someone whose anger is out of control? They will resist reconciliation. Yeah, you can stuff your sorries in a sack, mister. I ain't having nothing to do with you anymore. It's an uncontrolled anger. When our anger is out of control, it makes us blow up. It talks about wrath. Right? Wrath, as it's meant there, is an outburst of anger or a quick temper. Right? It could mean a continual and uncontrolled behavior. In Galatians 5 and 20, one of the works of the flesh is an outburst of wrath. Very similar to this. And the picture is someone who's always on the verge and the least little thing Causes them to just rah, rage in their anger. 
That's an outburst of wrath. That is sinful, uncontrolled anger. When our anger is out of control, it makes us continually angry. The word anger up there. It refers to a continuous attitude of anger that remains bottled up within. Right? It, it, typically, I think it would refer to what is under the surface where wrath is what blows up. So again, you know people that are just angry all the time. Something always hacks them off. Then their anger is out of control. Sinful. When our anger is out of control, it makes us use harsh words. The word clamor. It means loud statements of angry people determined to make sure everyone knows how they feel. It's not anger in actions, but it is anger in words. And when someone blows up and throws up words, making sure everyone knows how mad I am, that is an uncontrolled and a sinful anger. When our anger is out of control, it makes us slander others, evil speaking. Destroying other person's good reputation by lying, gossiping, spreading rumors, etc. You know, the reality is we don't think of that as being anger out of control, but how many of us know? Raise your hand. I want you to actually interact. Raise your hand if you know gossip, spreading rumors, or lying about someone, or trying to harm their reputation is wrong. Raise your hand. Caitlin, raise your hand. Okay, so we all know. So why do we do it? Because our anger is out of control and we hate that person and we want other people to know how we think about them. It's an uncontrolled sinful anger. And when our anger is out of control, it makes us malicious in our behavior, malice. The word is just a general term referring to an, an evil force that destroys relationships. It can mean anything from trouble to wickedness, but it is in a deliberate attempt to harm others. It can be in a deliberate attempt to harm them with our fists, or it can be in a deliberate attempt to harm them with our words. It can be a deliberate attempt to harm a relationship or a promotion or anything about them. If we are doing anything to harm them, that is malice. And it is sinful, uncontrolled anger. Now, culture makes excuses as to why uncontrolled anger is okay. That's just my personality preacher. I can't help it. Oh, but you don't know what they said. Sometimes you just don't know what they did. I mean, all of these reasons as to why it is, it is acceptable. It is reasonable. But the disciple of Jesus rejects that. The disciple of Jesus knows that uncontrolled anger is always sinful, never acceptable, never reasonable. So they do their dead level best to restrain it and resist it. When they give in to it, they repent as sin. Don't make excuses for it. They repent of it. They turn from it. And they apologize. We'll go on to that in a minute. But they try to do better next time. So uncontrolled anger is a sin, but contempt Filled anger is a sin. Right? And whoever says to his brother, Raka. Now, Raka, if you're like me, you read this and you go, hey, that's great. 
shall be in danger of the council. Because I don't know about you, I have never shouted Raka at anyone. Right? So if we just read it like that, we think, oh, that's easy. I've never done that exact thing. Good to go. However, the word Raka was a term of contempt and reproach. Kind of meant worthless. Although worthless doesn't really capture the full meaning. The phrase carries such a high level of contempt for the person you're saying it to that one pastor said, if you were to say rocket to someone, you are essentially saying, I'm going to spit in your face. Now, how much contempt do you have to have for another human being to spit in their face? Well, that's what you have here. What Jesus is condemning is an abusive language that communicates a deep contempt when talking to or about someone. And I want to give you a way to, if you want to see a real live example, here's what you do. Follow these directions. Go online. Find a news article discussing politics. Make a comment. Now, however, here's what you do. If you go to a conservative site, post negatively about the president. If you go to a liberal site, post positively about the president. And within two, three minutes tops, the three, three minutes, three minutes tops, I promise you, you'll see some rocket thrown your way. I mean, that's all of that that you see. If you're like me, you read the comments. That's what that is. That's rocket in real live action. You idiot, you moron, you're stupid. All of these things are examples of raka. And it's sinful because it communicates contempt for someone made in the image and the likeness of God. And it's not only sinful when they do it, but it is sinful when I do it. And it is sinful when you do it. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to a higher level of righteousness than contempt-filled conversations. Again, the culture tells us it's okay. It is acceptable and reasonable to speak contemptuously to another human being because they... or whatever. The disciple of Jesus Christ realizes it is a sin. And they do their dead level best to resist it and to restrain it. And if they give in to it, they repent of it as sin. And turn away from it. So uncontrolled anger is a sin. Contempt-filled anger is a sin. And condemning anger is a sin. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now the way we use fool in our culture is very different than the way the Jews use the word fool. In our, in our culture, we use fool like an idiot. Uh, we mean someone with no sense. But in the Jewish culture, that's not what fool meant at all. It basically was someone who lived in willful rebellion against God and was either what we might call an atheist or an apostate. Uh, you're probably familiar with Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So to call someone a fool was to more or less say that either they were going to hell or you hoped that they would go to hell or to curse someone to the fires of hell. Now, here's a question along with these lines. Does that mean it's wrong to teach that those who reject Jesus will go to hell? 
Well, no. No, to, to make people aware of their lostness so they can place their faith in Jesus and be saved from hell is one of the most noble tasks that we can undertake. What is sinful is to curse them to the fires of hell in a fit of anger. What is sinful is to tell people you hope they go to hell. Or to tell them you will burn in hell for that. And it is also sinful to kind of enjoy the thought they are going to go to hell. Now be sure to notice how serious all of this is. Especially the last one. In the others, if you are angry without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. If you say Raka, you're in danger of the council. But if you say you fool, you're in danger of the judgment itself. You're in danger of hell's fire. By gleefully condemning someone to hell, you place yourself in danger of hell. Why? Why is it so severe? The only reason I can find is that this one is so severe, it's because of how contrary to the heart of God it is. If in my heart I can condemn someone to hell, I am in my heart very, very far from God. You say, well, how can you say that? Let's all read this together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So God's heart says, I love you. I want to save you. Don't go to hell. The angry heart that's far from God says, I hate you. I hope you go to hell. Again, the culture very clearly makes excuses as why condemning anger is acceptable and reasonable. The follower of Jesus realizes this is a sin and it's always a sin. And so they do their dead level best to resist it and restrain it. And when they fail, they repent of it as sin. And they do their best to turn from it. So we realize the unrighteousness of anger, recognize the sins of anger, and then finally restore ruptured relationships ruptured by anger. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. How many of us know that words said in anger and actions taken in anger cause problems? I mean... Has any of us ever acted in our anger and made the world a better place? Helped any relationship we have ever had? No. No, it ruptures relationships. It, it brings a breach in there. It causes all kinds of problems. Now, verse 23, here's the deal. We're the ones at fault. That's the picture. We haven't restrained our anger. We have sinned in our anger. We have been uncontrolled. We have been condemning. We have spoken to them contemptuously. And now there's a breach in our relationship with a brother or a sister. Particularly in this case, a brother or sister in Christ. What do I do? I must seek reconciliation. Right? I have to, to humble myself. 
I have to admit that I'm wrong. And I have to, to go to them in an effort to fix the relationship. Well, how do I go about doing this? Three ways, and we'll be through. Recognize the importance of reconciliation. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. If you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Our relationships with one another are so important that if we are about to offer God and a sacrifice of worship, and we remember that someone is offended by our anger, that we have done something to hurt them, to separate our friendship with them, to, to cause a breach in that relationship, we are to go to them first. So to put it in, in like Sunday morning context, if you're on your way to church Sunday morning, and you remember that on Sunday night you called someone a moron or an idiot on Facebook, or you got mad and punched them in the head, then you're to turn from church and go to them. Whether it's at their house or at their church or wherever they are, you're to knock on their door. And you're to say, I'm sorry. It was my fault. I sinned. Will you forgive me? But we are to do that and then come back to church. I mean, that's pretty important, right? It is so important that Jesus says... Do it before you worship me. Do it before you offer your sacrifices. The answer as to why it's so important, there's, there's a lot, but the one that stood out most to me is just in the, the word obedience. Disciples of Jesus are obedient to Jesus. First and foremost, we He is Lord. And we are His servants and we do what He says to do. It's not a stretch to say that our that Jesus prefers our acts of obedience to our worship. And in fact, Scripture says that without obedience, our worship is not even pleasing to God. Look, look at this. This is, I don't know if you can read it, but I'll read it to you. This is Amos 5, 21-24. And listen, this is God speaking to the people. I hate... I despise your feast days and do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your string instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, they were living unjustly. They were oppressing the poor. They were doing all that they could to elevate themselves and stepping on others in the process, all contrary to God's Word. And yet, while they were oppressing the neighbor and oppressing their brothers, they would still come and they would gather on feast days and they would have sacred assemblies and they would offer sacrifices and they would sing songs of praise to God, to which God says, I hate all of that. I hate it. You know what I want? I want justice. I want righteousness. And then come and offer your sacrifices. Then come and sing songs. Part 
from our lives being at least, I'm not saying perfection. Never hear me say perfection. But apart from our lives striving for obedience, to do what Jesus says, to take up our cross and follow Him, our worship is meaningless. It doesn't matter how pretty our songs are. It's just noise. It doesn't matter how much money we give. It's nothing to Jesus. Nothing we offer Him in worship is pleasing or acceptable in His sight when we have been living in, in this case, anger and we know we have ruptured relationships and we are not trying to restore it. If we are not willing to do what He says, our worship of Him is not even remotely pleasing to Him. Now again, this is contrary to culture. To be obedient to Jesus so that we can worship Jesus. We have to go to those that we offend and seek reconciliation. Now listen, culture tells us that people offended by our angry words and deeds are snowflakes. They're wimps. And we just need to avoid them. But Jesus tells us people offended by our angry words and deeds matter. And we should seek them out to try to restore that relationship. So recognize the importance of reconciliation. Take the initiative. If you bring your gift to the altar, remember, go to them first. As Christians, the burden to work for reconciliation falls to us. It is not on the person that we have offended to come to us and say, you offended me, Christian. It is on us to go to them and say, I offended you. I'm sorry. But what if we don't? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? James says to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it's a sin. You know, we typically limit sin to specific acts we do wrong. And while that is sin, it is also a sin to know we're supposed to do right and not do it. As followers, as disciples of Jesus, we should be devoted to Jesus. That we'll do whatever He wants us to do when He wants us to do it. So in this case, right now I'm thinking of someone that I have offended through my anger. If I am obedient to Jesus... I will leave church and go to them immediately. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. And if I don't do the good I know I'm supposed to do, that is a sin. We are sinning against Jesus. And we may think this is just such a small issue, it really doesn't matter. Let's remember that the classification to big sins and small sins and acceptable sins and really bad sins, that's all of our making. That's not something Scripture does. On top of that, to to get an idea of the importance of this, go through the New Testament. And every time it says one another, circle it, underline it, highlight it, start it, do something so that it stands out. And notice how many times 
We're told to love one another, encourage one another, help one another, restore one another. One pastor I read said there's something like over 50 commands to one another, one another in Scripture. Man, that's pretty important if it's mentioned 50 times. How important are our relationships to God? Very. Over and over again, Scripture teaches us that Jesus is greatly concerned about our relationships with one another. And each one of us has a responsibility to make sure our relationships are as they should be. When we make someone angry, when we hurt their feelings in our anger, culture says to say to them, good riddance. Jesus says to go to them and try to restore the relationship. So we... Recognize the importance, take the initiative, and then go before it's too late. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer. You'll be thrown into prison assuredly. I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, it was a practice among the, Gentile, the Jews of Jesus' day to take those who owed them money and couldn't pay it to debtor's court. Now, when someone was taken to debtor's court, you had the opportunity to settle with them up until the moment when you actually stood before the judge. But once you were in the court and you were standing before the judge, at that point, it all rested on the judge. And his judgment was final. And even if they wanted to, the plaintiff could not accept any amount of payment other than what the judge had ordered. The verdict could not be changed. So that's the picture here. Before it's too late, before the final verdict has been rendered, go soon, quickly. Don't put it off. Don't wait. For a lot of reasons. One, the longer the offended person is hurt because of our actions or our words, the harder it will be to reconcile the relationship. You know, the old cliche says that time heals all wounds. But how many of us know that's a lie? But it does not heal those wounds. If you have ever been hurt by the words or actions of another, you know time does not make it better. The longer someone is hurt, the more the hurt grows until there comes a time when the relationship could never be fixed. It may forgive you. It may not hate you. The relationship is ruined from that point on. We also, secondly, have to remember that our time on earth is limited. I mean, there is a legitimate possibility that we may die or they may die before the opportunity to reconcile happens. It's not, I'm a hospice chaplain. I deal with dying people every week. Do you know how many people I deal with have guilt their, their mom, their dad, their brother is laying there dying. And for the last 20 years, they've ignored them because they were angry. And now they're unconscious. They're just waiting to die and they're, they're racked with guilt. It's too late. That relationship can't be restored. The person can never forgive them. They cannot fix the rupture. We have to be careful because... There is a legitimate possibility that we will wait too long and it cannot be fixed. 
Now, I do want to point out that if we go, we're not responsible for the response. It is entirely possible that we can go to someone, we can apologize for our sinful actions, we can take all the responsibility, and they will not forgive. They will not reconcile. And there's nothing we can do about that. We can't make an angry person be unangry. We can't unoffend the offended. We can't bring forgiveness to those who are going to hold the grudge and be bitter. We, we just can't. And if that happens in those times, all we can do, I would say, is two things. First, realize we've done our part. We've done all that we could. But secondly, let that be a lesson for us. Because we're going because it was our fault. In our anger, we said or we did something that hurt this. Let that be a lesson for us that maybe that jab just isn't worth it. Maybe that snarky comment just isn't worth it. And let it go. So I want to ask you today, do you have a shotgun temper? Do you blow and go and then be surprised when others can't go on as quickly as you can? Do you treat others with contempt when you're angry? Do you condemn people to hell when you're angry? Are you always on the verge of blowing up at any given moment? If you answered yes to any of those questions, your anger controls you. And it is a sin. And you must accept that. It is a sin. And then you must repent of it. Now repentance... It's a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. In the end, here's the deal. The change of mind is this. We stop making excuses for it. Because so often, what we do as, as angry people is we, we justify that's just part of my character. That's how my family is. We're just angry people. I mean, we just do that. I can't help it. I have a short temper. And I want to say something here, and it's going to be it's going to sound harsh, but I don't mean it to. When we justify our temper that way, we are hypocrites. Because we don't justify anything else that way. Someone comes to you and says, I, I think I was born a homosexual. And that's just the way I am. Are you going to say, well, that's how you are. That's the way it is. What are you going to do? You're going to say, no. Well, it doesn't matter how you were born. Jesus can make you reborn. Our natural sinful inclinations, that's not... That's not who we are. Jesus has called us to more. He's called us to higher. He has saved us to be different than that. That's what we would tell someone struggling with same-sex attraction. 
And then we turn around and blow up in our anger and say, that's just how I am. I was born this way. Oh, my friend, that is religious hypocrisy and it too must be repented of. This morning, if you are an angry person, I'm not urging you to do better. You've probably tried to do better. I'm urging you to go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and let Him transform you. Go to Jesus and let Him deliver you. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not. What I'm saying is, there's still more Jesus can do in you and through you and for you to set you free of your anger. You don't have to be enslaved by uncontrollable, sinful anger. You can be free. This can be lived out. We can be angry and sin not. But you must go to Jesus. You can't do it on your own because you've probably already tried. You've tried to control it. You've tried to resist it. You've tried to knuckle it under. How's that going? Poorly, I would imagine. This morning there is a need for you to lay it before Jesus and lay it at the cross and say, my sin is anger. My anger is sin. It's not enough, Jesus, that this is how I'm raised. It's not enough that this is what I'm like. It's not enough that this is what my family is. You can make me different. I surrender all to you, Jesus. Deliver me from my sinful anger. Forgive me for the sinful anger I live in. This morning, if you are an angry person, that is what you need to do. This morning, if you know in your anger you have offended someone, you need to go to them. You need to go to them as soon as service is out in whatever way you can. And you need to do what you can to reconcile that relationship. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. And in this time, what we want to do is we want to confess our sin if it's there. We don't want to make excuses for our anger. We want to say, Jesus, this is sin. We want to plead for His help to overcome it. For Him to transform us. Change us. And if there is someone we need to go to, we want to pray, Jesus, give me grace and favor before this person as I go. Give me courage to go and give me favor in their sight. This relationship can be restored.